Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. Now, kidneys are pretty remarkable organs. They filter a relatively large amount of blood every minute, and they push this through and around the kidney's functional unit, this little thing called a nephron. Now, kidneys are made up of millions of these tiny nephron units, and they work together to filter blood. So the filter itself, the, the very basis of this, looks like a letter U. And if you can imagine one end of the top of the U connecting to the plumbing that delivers what's filtered out, so vectoring it ultimately through this tiny network of tubules that end up in the urinary bladder. So one end of the U is the exit. Okay, got that? Now at the other end, there's a hollow ball. And inside that hollow ball, is a little cluster of blood vessels that comes through from the circulatory system. And that little cluster of balls, that little cluster, that little ball inside the, uh, inside the capsule, I think it's called Bowman's capsule, if memory serves me right, uh, that little blob of, nef of uh, arteries and blood vessels inside there is called the glomerulus and thin walls. And this is where different molecules will move out of the blood and into the Bowman's capsule, into the nephron, the, the, the uh, tube that's there. And from there, they'll move down that tube, down the U and back up the U. And as it moves down and up the U, the descending and ascending lupapenole, if I remember correctly, there's differential absorption of different molecules that are important or that have to be getting rid of. So there is an exchange of water and ions uh, things like amino acids and proteins, or not maybe not proteins, amino acids and uh, sugars are reabsorbed and, and, and held onto by the cell. And there's different kinds of transporters, some that are active, some that use uh, osmoregulation, a lot of different things that happen in the nephron. But it is an incredible, tiny, little plumbing machine, a little filter that in mass forms the kidney and allows us to purify the blood. And that's why disorders that affect the kidneys can be so problematic because even minor changes or damage that affect the permeability of these structures can have profound health consequences. So today we're going to talk about rare diseases of the kidney, and then we're going to offer some new potential solutions that address those issues. And today's guest is Dr. Andrew King. He's the Chief Scientific Officer of Chinook Therapeutics. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. King. Hi, Kevin. Thanks. Really looking forward to chatting with you today. Yeah, me too. We've been trying to put this together for a long time. So first episode on something to do with kidneys. So when we refer to severe chronic kidney disease, what kind of diseases are we referring to? Yeah, chronic kidney disease or CKD is really any progressive loss of kidney function over time, which in a most advanced state can result in dialysis or transplantation necessary to sustain life. CKD could be caused by a whole range of underlying etiologies. Uh, in the United States, the most common causes are associated with diabetes, 
hypertension, uh, rare groups of primary glomerular diseases, uh, and also rare genetic diseases like polycystic kidney disease uh, or calcium oxalate kidney stones. So CKD is really an umbrella term for a large range of different causes that result in progressive kidney function loss. Yeah, I guess I've seen um, chronic kidney disease of unknown origin too. Is that kind of in the same boat of, of d diseases or disorders? Yeah, that's really when you're unable to identify the initiating etiology. You have a patient with low kidney function. Uh, they generally have a biopsy and can't really identify what the underlying cause was. And that's generally classified as unknown. Okay, I see. So when you say biopsy, they, you can biopsy a kidney and look very carefully at the structure of nephrons and kind of get an idea as to where the breakdown is occurring? Yeah, ab absolutely. Uh, kidney biopsy techniques have advanced significantly uh, such that they are relatively low-risk procedures uh, now. And generally speaking, most kidney diseases require a biopsy for definitive diagnosis uh, based on the histological characteristics and sometimes some special stains to look for uh, other aspects of kidney disease. Okay. So how frequent are these problems? I mean, you talked about high blood pressure and diabetes, which is like one in every, you know, like every other person. So are there increasing diseases of the kidney in terms of their incidence? Yeah, absolutely. Chronic kidney diseases are severe and growing worldwide problem. Uh, just over 10% of the global population has chronic kidney disease. So that's 800 million people worldwide, including over 37 million uh, in the United States. Uh, and lifestyle uh, and environmental changes are contributing to a growing problem with chronic kidney disease. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, solutions like transplantation, but you know that's expensive and challenging and you have to have typically a living donor, right? Or do you, is it really hard to get donors to solve the problem? Yeah, it is very challenging and, and there are staggering costs uh, to both the healthcare system and the individuals with chronic kidney disease, uh, including in, in transplantation. In the United States, there's about 23,000 kidney transplants annually, uh, but there's generally on average a four year wait list uh, to get a kidney transplant, uh, to have a kidney come available uh, that actually matches uh, with the patient. Uh, and yeah. it's really expensive. It's, it's over $400,000 per transplant. And then the patient is on lifelong immunosuppression, which is associated with infection risk, as well as increased risk for cancer. And then also that time period prior to transplantation, this is done like on dialysis, which is maybe something that you have to go to weekly. So it's also a big personal cost and really an infringement on, you know, convenience and everything else, right? I mean, this is a really invasive uh, problem to have in your, in uh, an invasive health problem. Yeah. Dia dialysis is devastating for, for the patient and their family. You actually have to have dialysis at least three times a week. So an average patient on dialysis has over 150 hospital and dialysis center visits per year. Um, and it's for multiple hours, uh, at a time. Uh, the cost of this is expensive as well, over $200,000 a year. Uh, annually, leading to an annual U U.S. healthcare cost of over $130 billion for chronic kidney disease. So it really is staggering. Yeah. So $130 billion of cost to the system, 
a really significant cost in terms of personal cost and time, and uh, really looks like it needs some new therapies. So what, what are the current slate of therapies that are used to treat chronic kidney diseases and, and why, what, how can they be improved? Yeah, un unfortunately, innovation in chronic kidney disease therapies uh, has been very slow, and the currently available treatments are generally non-specific and supportive, and often repurpose uh, medicines from other indications like antihypertensives uh, and anti-diabetic drugs uh, that don't actually target the, the pathways in the kidney uh, driving kidney progression. There has been uh, some recent advances. I think we may be at the tip of an iceberg uh, for significant innovation moving forward with chronic kidney disease. Uh, there's been a few recent approvals that are targeted uh, to more direct aspects uh, of kidney pathogenesis. And I think that's going to be uh, the real opportunity moving forward as we have much greater understanding of the genetic and molecular pathogenesis of human chronic kidney disease now that we have the opportunity uh, to discover and develop targeted medicines uh, to these key pathogenic pathways uh, that will really have meaningful impact uh, on this large population with huge unmet need. So that really is a good lead in to what's happening in your company because you're targeting some specific diseases, but they seem to be, and correct me if I'm wrong, they seem to be a little more rare. And how does that offer specific challenges such as recruitment for clinical trials or, you know, even the interest in investment into a disease which has, you know, doesn't have this gigantic number of people who are suffering from it? Yeah, we, we are focused on rare diseases, uh, but we're focusing on the common rare diseases, uh, if that makes sense. So, okay. so actually uh, can ha have a patient population, for example, our lead indications in IgA nephropathy, uh, there's 150,000 biopsy-proven IgM patients in the United States. Uh, so that's a relatively substantial population that supports um, clinical trial uh, enrollment and also a really strong commercial opportunity. Uh, the other advantage of focusing on rare diseases is there's been a significant evolution from a regulatory perspective, specifically for rare diseases. One of the reasons that innovation has been challenging in the nephrology space is that traditionally sponsors have had to do heart kidney outcome trials. Uh, so that's following patients to these heart endpoints like dialysis or transplantation. Uh, those studies can be up to 5,000 patients, take up to five years of duration and cost over $500 million. So it's been very challenging uh, for sponsors to move into the space. The recent uh, change from a regulatory perspective has recognized that it's just not feasible to do these kinds of studies in rare diseases. Uh, so there's been a significant movement and advance towards using surrogate biomarkers uh, that can support at least accelerated approval uh, and even full approval in some indications. Uh, so now we're looking at a rare disease of a 300 patient uh, phase three trial uh, that can run over a couple of years duration uh, at much less significant cost. So it really does open the opportunity for efficient drug development uh, to help address the huge unmet need in these underserved populations. Very good. So 
in the first part of the podcast here, we've defined what the problem is, that there's a significant amount of chronic kidney disease, some of which are based upon these rare disorders that can occur. And there are some good reasons to try to focus on the rare ones. So on the other side of the break, we'll talk about solutions. So we're speaking with Dr. Andrew King. He's the Chief Science Officer of Chinook Therapeutics. This is Calabra's Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Calabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on Talking Biotech's podcast with Dr. Andrew King. He's a chief scientific officer of Chinook Therapeutics. And we're talking about chronic kidney disease and some rare chronic kidney diseases in which his company is developing some new therapeutics. And what I would like to focus on in this last part is a little bit more about etiology. What are these uh, diseases, underlying pathologies? And then how are, the, uh, how are the therapies, the new novel therapies, targeting them specifically? So when we look at the pipeline on your website at Chinook, the most advanced therapies are for IgA nephropathy and, and IGAN. And what is this and how were the therapies discovered? Yeah, so IgA nephropathy is actually the, the most common uh, primary glomerular nephritis uh, in the world. It's an autoimmune disease, uh, which results from the production of an abnormal form of IgA uh, that's recognized by the immune system as foreign, leading to the formation of these IgA-containing immune complexes, which for a reason that's not well understood, selectively deposit in the kidney. Uh, where they drive kidney inflammation and kidney fibrosis. Over 50% of IGAM patients are at risk for progression to end-stage kidney disease uh, requiring dialysis or transplantation. Uh, so an important unmet need uh, in a patient population that are generally relatively young uh, in, their first, in the second or third decade uh, of life when they're diagnosed. So they have a lot of life to live uh, with kidneys progressively losing function. We think this is a really important opportunity uh, to deliver innovative solutions uh, to these patients uh, and therefore have two late stage programs uh, that focus complementary aspects of the disease pathogenesis. Atrocentin uh, is our most advanced program where top line phase three data that could support registration are anticipated to read out later this year Natrocenta is an endothelial A receptor antagonist that works in the kidney to block the pathogenic pathways that are activated following immune complex deposition. Our earlier program, Bion1301, is a monoclonal antibody uh, that blocks April, which is a TNF superfamily cytokine member uh, that's involved in the excess production of that abnormal variant of IgA I mentioned. Uh, so by blocking April, you can decrease the production of the abnormal IgA and potentially have a disease-modifying mechanism of action by intervening very proximal in the disease pathogenesis. Given the high unmet need in IGAN and the complex 
pathogenesis, we believe having two programs that target distinct aspects of that pathogenesis and a very complementary will help more completely address that high unmet need. Yeah, it almost seems that these two things separately would potentially relieve the issue, but it seems like they may be especially effective in combination because you're not only not creating the variant, you're also stopping deposition of the uh, variant in the glomerulus when it, when it happens to deposit. Yeah, absolutely. We're actually very excited as the only sponsor that has two separate eigen drugs in development uh, with these distinct and complementary mechanisms, as you described, uh, to combine them together. And we think they could really be helpful in changing the trajectory of these young eigen patients' lives by addressing both aspects, the formation of immune complexes uh, and that abnormal response uh, in the kidney. We're working on our strategy to assess that clinically and, and really focused on when would the timing of that combination study be uh, to help support uh, potential combination use. Yeah, the other nephron-associated disorder that we think of is uh, proteinuria, and this is a glomerular disease. Uh, and tell me, in the beginning of the podcast today, I talked a little bit about the glomerulus and what it is. But if you could give us a little more sophisticated idea about what is the glomerulus and what is its role in the nephron and infiltration and why leaking protein is a bad symptom. Yeah, the, the glomerulus is the functional unit of the kidney, which is involved in filtration of the blood, uh, which works to excrete the waste products uh, through the urine. The glomerulus is essentially a very specialized high-pressure vascular bed uh, to support that filtration function. Normally, the glomerulus functions to exclude the filtration of valuable things that the body wants to retain, uh, including uh, the cellular components, uh, like blood and white blood cells, but also high molecular weight proteins, uh, including albumin and immunoglobulins, normally are too large to be filtered through the kidneys. However, in glomerular diseases, there's a disruption to this glomerular filtration barrier that now becomes permeable to proteins, such that protein now leaks into the urine and can be detected on routine diagnostic uh, tests. So often the presence of proteinuria in the urine would trigger additional investigation uh, to a potential underlying kidney disease. Not only is proteinuria uh, an important indicator uh, to look for a diagnosis, it appears to also be involved in the progression of kidney disease uh, by promoting kidney inflammation uh, and kidney fibrosis uh, and is used as a surrogate endpoint in certain settings uh, to assess treatment benefits of new, new agents. Yeah, so this one seems like a harder nut to crack. So how are proposed drugs addressing this particular problem? There's a whole range of reasons uh, to have proteinuria, and generally there's two strategies. Uh, one is just conventional conservative therapy that's uh, suitable irrespective of what the initiating cause is. So they could be things like decreasing the pressure in the kidney, uh, decreasing the drive for protein to be sheltered. So antihypertensive drugs, particularly renin-angiotensin system inhibitors, like ACE inhibitors, and ARBs are essentially a backbone of treatment of all proteinuric glomerular diseases. Other hemodynamic agents like SGLT2 inhibitors that were originally approved in type 2 diabetes 
also have a similar effect to decrease the pressure in the kidney. And they can be helpful to decrease proteinuria uh, and delay progression. But where the nephrology field has shifted now is really looking at what's the underlying cause for the proteinuria in the first place and try to directly uh, target that pathogenic mechanism. Uh, one great example uh, has been the recent recognition of a gene variant uh, in people of West African descent uh, in the APOL1 gene that confers significantly increased risk of chronic kidney disease uh, by damaging cells in the glomerulus responsible uh, for preserving the glomerular filtration barrier. So agents are in development now that could be added on top of these supportive therapies I mentioned to directly target that gene variant to more completely address the underlying cause of the diseases. Okay, so that's in that gene variant. Is it because it's producing something that's just changing the permeability of the glomerulus, the glomerular vasculature itself, or is it something that's changing the uptake from the glomerulus? Yeah, in this particular situation in APOL1 associated nephropathy, this risk variant is expressed in specialized cells of the glomerulus, ponocyte cells, uh, which actually form the filtration barrier. And this is a gain of function variant uh, and essentially results in increased ion channel activity on the cell surface of those ponocyte cells, causing damage to those cells uh, and disruption to the filtration barrier itself. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. That, the basic idea in repairing glomerular problems is you either turn down the pressure in the pipes or find ways to limit the leakage from the pipes in other ways, like kind of patch them in other ways. So do I have that right? Absolutely. That's exactly right. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a plant biologist by training. So I'm a, I've, we work with kidney beans now and then. That's about the closest <laughs> I get. <laughs> Actually, I had a lot of uh, a lot of anatomy and physiology in high school and college, so I kind of know this stuff a bit. Um, so, uh, other issues with um, the kidney have to do with oxalic acid, and you talked about this with uh, briefly earlier. But when you have cases of um, hyperoxaluria, this is really starting in the liver when it's producing too much oxalate, and uh, what is actually happening, and uh, why is this a problem ultimately to the kidneys? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting crosstalk between the liver in the kidney and the setting of hyperoxaluria. The liver uh, can, in certain circumstances, overproduce oxalate, uh, which is essentially a non-metabolizable waste product that's essentially exclusively excreted by the kidney in the urine. When oxalate production is increased by the liver and that excretion levels elevated uh, in the kidney, you can get calcium oxalate precipitation of crystals that could form into calcium oxalate kidney stones. So you really get deposition of this insoluble calcium oxalate stone in the kidney, which causes dramatic pain uh, in the form of kidney stones. And in some situations could also cause significant kidney damage leading to progressive kidney function loss uh, and dialysis. And how much does diet play a role in that? I know that there's some fruits that are really high in oxalic acid, things like star fruits. 
Yeah, that's an important consideration. There's really two forms of hyperoxaluria. One is from endogenous overproduction uh, in the liver, as we just described. But there are settings in which dietary hyperabsorption uh, can occur and contribute significantly to kidney stone formation. That can be associated with the foods you described, high oxalate diets. But it's also uh, commonly observed in other gastrointestinal diseases, uh, including following gastric bypass surgery. That sets up a phenomenon of dietary oxalate hyperabsorption, significant elevations in blood oxalate concentrations that ultimately deposit in the kidney. So both dietary sources, intestinal absorption, as well as endogenous hepatic production, overall are important contributors to kidney stones. Well, the solution, at least of the hepatic arm of this, is a pretty well-described enzyme, that's lactate dehydrogenase. And what is the role of lactate dehydrogenase in oxalate metabolism, and how does inhibiting that slow accumulation in oxalate? Yeah, LDHA is the final and only committed step in oxalate biosynthesis in the liver. So blocking LDHA uh, with a small molecule, uh, which we're doing uh, with CHIC-336, our third clinical program uh, that's currently in phase one healthy volunteer study, uh, blocks LDHA, so it blocks the final step in oxalate production uh, in the liver. So that has broad potential to impact forms of hyperoxaluria that result in overproduction of oxalate from the liver from a variety of different uh, initiating sources. So blocking that oxalate production in the liver will reduce the burden uh, on the kidneys for filtration and reduce the production of calcium oxalate kidney stones. Okay, so you don't produce oxalate because you inhibit the enzyme that makes it. But then do you hyperaccumulate the substrate? And is there a problem with that? There's actually numerous detoxification pathways which the substrates could shuttle through uh, without causing uh, any clinical concern. There's actually a rare uh, human mutation uh, resulting in complete loss of function of LDHA. And they're essentially phenotypically normal, uh, with the exception of an exercise-induced muscle phenotype, but their liver and the accumulation of substrates is not problematic uh, elsewhere. Uh, and that observation in humans showing that liver LDHA loss of function is completely well-tolerated motivated our strategy with CHECK336 to discover, develop, and optimize a liver-targeted small molecule inhibitor of LDHA such that you get high concentrations of the drug in the liver to block hepatic oxalate production, which has been shown to be well-tolerated, while minimizing systemic exposure and avoiding any inhibition in the skeletal muscle. Now, see, this is the part that always intrigues me with drug discovery. So you have this enzyme that you'd like to inhibit that hangs out in the liver, and how do you find a small molecule that selectively impairs the function of that enzyme? Yeah, so one of the advantages of targeting the liver is the liver is loaded with different transporters. The liver plays a really important role of extracting substances, nutrients, chemicals absorbed, absorbed, absorbed by the gut uh, before they enter the systemic circulation. So to protect, protect the systemic circulation. 
So we have been able to harness those transporters that have normal physiological functions in the liver to design drugs with structural elements that those transporters recognize. So once the drug's absorbed from the intestine, these high capacity transporters are very effective at pulling the drug out of the circulation and into the liver before they're able to reach the systemic circulation. An example of drugs that work through a strategy like this are the statin drugs used to lower LDL cholesterol. Their target is in the liver. They also need to avoid significant exposures in skeletal muscle because uh, skeletal muscle injury is a side effect of statins. They, they take advantage of these transporters as well to get high liver to plasma ratios so they can do their pharmacologic work uh, in the target tissue while minimizing exposures to other sites that could lead to side effects. Well, very good. So when you're talking about these uh, different strategies, you may have mentioned this during the course of this. How far along are these in clinical trials? Yeah, our CHECK336 program is currently in a phase one healthy volunteer study. Uh, that's to establish safety, tolerability, pharmacokinetics, uh, and proof of mechanism. So it's still in early phases of clinical development. Yeah, pretty cool. So, and the other ones are in uh, the ones for um, IgA, IgA nephropathy, that's in uh, phase three, I think you said? That, that's correct. Atrocentin uh, is in phase three and we'll have top line data uh, later this year. And Bion 1301, our second program in IGAN, is just going into phase three uh, in the middle of this year. No, that's, that's pretty exciting. So you have a couple things that are moving along through the pipeline here rather soon. If, if things go extremely well, when do you think that patients experiencing these uh, diseases, when do you think they may have access to these kinds of therapies? Yeah, right now with our lead program, Atrocentin, if the data towards the end of this year is positive, that will give us an opportunity to submit a new drug application uh, to the FDA uh, in the early period of next year. Uh, following FDA review, which is typically eight to 12 months, depending on whether you get priority review or not, that would be the timing of when there could be a potential uh, approval uh, in IgA nephropathy. So towards the end of next year, uh, if things go well, we'll hopefully be preparing uh, to launch our first drug and provide access to patients. Yeah, that's really one of the bittersweet parts about doing this podcast every week is you hear of these therapies. First, you hear of the problem and imagine people going for uh, you know, dialysis or waiting on a list for four years. And uh, you hear of a potential solution, then you hear of the bureaucratic time lag. And I know you can't really get too upset about that. As a chief science officer, you got to play by the rules. But I just, from my perspective, it sure would be nicer if there was a way to connect people with the therapies faster. And at least we can talk about them here and give a little bit of hope that these things are on the agenda and maybe coming soon. So if listeners wanted to learn more about this and maybe monitor the progress, uh, where would they look? There's certainly a, a lot of scientific information about our specific programs uh, at Chinook on our website at chinooptx.com. There's also other resources through the American Society of Nephrology, the National Kidney Foundation, and other advocacy groups 
that provide a lot of important information about kidney diseases, as well as a broader overview of uh, drugs that are in development uh, from other sponsors to treat kidney diseases as well. And if people wanted to learn more from social media, do you have a presence, say, on Twitter or LinkedIn? Yeah, we do have a Twitter at ChinookTX, and we also have a presence on LinkedIn, uh, Chinook Therapeutics. Very good. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. It's always fun to talk about new areas that we haven't discovered yet and talk about some of the rare problems and some of the coming solutions. So thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks very much, Kevin, and really appreciate your interest in chronic kidney disease. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Tell a friend because this is a problem in so many places. Chronic kidney disease affects many people, and having a little bit of hope for a solution could go a long way in making somebody have a little more rosy outlook towards the future. So share, share, share. Thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. And we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.